0: cover money inside the 2016 Bartlett and Steele gold award-winning investigation the Panama Papers
1: it was hard of course if you know one journalist you probably have somebody with a quite big ego and we had 400 of them in our collaboration so we had arguments we had fights inside our groups for a year we had to find compromises our compromises
0: hello and welcome to the reynolds center how to cover money podcast we're coming to you from the Donald W. Reynolds National Center for Business Journalism based at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. I'm Jenna Miller, today's host of the How to Cover Money podcast. Today we talk with reporter Bastian Obermeier of the Munich-based paper Zuidweche Zeitung and Gerard Ryle, director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, about the 2016 Bartlett & Steele Gold Award project, The Panama Papers. The Panama Papers' global investigation was the largest in history. It began with the leak of millions of documents from the Panama-based law firm Mossack Fonseca, which created offshore companies to hide financial information. Journalists dug through all of these documents to find evidence of wrongdoing by some of the most powerful people in the world. The huge success was due in part to the unprecedented cooperation by over 100 media partners, who coordinated to keep the story a secret until publication. I sat down with Bastian Obermeyer and Gerard Ryle to go behind the scenes of this historic investigation. Obermeyer was the first person to communicate with the initial whistleblower and get a look at the documents. He starts us off by describing his first reactions.
1: The first messages were, were quite short and, short and clear, and I had a good feeling, but um, it's been a bad day because my whole family was sick and my kids were throwing up and I had to change the sheets and I had to go back and forth with the source and to show that I'm really willing and I'm the one that he or she really wants to give the material so it's been an exhaustive day and and in the end we got the first material and I was really excited because where it was coming from it was coming from Mossack Fonseca a law firm from Panama that we only knew as a black hole as a a black door, you know, where Whenever we tried to get information from, there was no chance for us. And now we had somebody who clearly had access to the, the innest of Mossack Fonseca, and that made me really happy. And when we found, only a few days later, the best buddy of Vladimir Putin and the, the then acting prime minister of Iceland, I was really happy and decided to call Gerard.
2: Yeah, I got a call from Bastian a few weeks after he'd got the documents, and he was, he was very excited from day one. He was convinced it was a very big story. I wasn't, um, <laughs> simply because we had done a number of offshore secrecy jurisdiction stories already at ICIJ, and this is how we got to know each other. For me, every story that we do has got to be better than the last story, and I thought, because I've got to try and convince all of these media partners to get interested in the story, this story had to be really good. And I needed to be convinced. Now he laughs about that, but I also think that that was my job, and I think it's important to make, you know, for, for reporters to really think about well, what is the story here? How are we going to make this interesting for people? So it was one of caution, but I did get a little bit excited when I went to Munich. We spent a few days looking through the material and. And I thought, yeah, this could be good.
1: But we didn't know also. That was one one essential part of the story that uh, it, it you know, our excitement kept also growing because we got more and better names all the way while we were working. And
2: that was another thing that, that kept us uh, going hard. Yeah, it wasn't like you were getting a, a bunch of documents from a source who was saying, here are a bunch of documents on 10. Politicians or ten important people. It was here a bunch of documents, and then you had to go and find whatever was of interest in there. And we all started doing what every journalist does: we type in our favourite names. They weren't there. We were disappointed, and then you gradually realise that you had to listen to the documents. You had to. You could. You know. You had to let the story. Um, find you rather than you find the story.
0: Ultimately, Obermeyer received 11.5 million documents. Ryle spoke about how they dealt with such a vast web of information.
2: Well, we, we basically, um, at ICIJ, so we, we have data engineers. So half of our team, we've got a small team of 12 people, six of them are data engineers. So they worked out a way of, we um, basically used open source software um, that had been originally designed for librarians and we used this open source software basically to index all of the documents and make them available on the cloud and then we allowed the reporters to go from their computers and do document search a little bit like google Um, and then the second way we managed it was we built a virtual newsroom for the reporters to go into so they could share tips talk to each other um, ask for help from each other so if a story went from germany to brazil to to Greece, we had reporters in each country who could then follow the trail and find documents. It's very important when you get documents like this to put context around them. It's not like someone's giving the document and you have the story. That's It's the beginning of the process, not the end of the process. So, you know, for instance, when we found the, you know, as Bastian found right away, the prime minister of, of Iceland, that by itself wasn't a story. But it was working in Iceland with the reporter there who who first of all realized that he hadn't declared that company. That made it interesting. But then by combing through public records of the Icelandic banks, he found a reference to this particular company and found that it was a creditor of the banks. In fact, it had owned stock or like um, financial interest in the banks and then it became a great story
1: And many stories don't develop that
2: way it sounds so easy
1: um, if you say there's a leak and all those documents you only only have to find the good one and hey you got the story but it's um, unfortunately it's not at all like this I think my guess is that for each story we did we had to bury 15 other stories and this is really what we did last year we buried stories one after another and then in the end we had decided at Süddeutsche Zeitung to go for you know an amount of 50 good stories about people and then our lawyers came and they threw away another 20 stories so and this was really uh, really exhausting and and hard work and nothing was easy about it
2: unfortunately. Yeah and we had another challenge too because we operate here in the US. We needed to establish public interest in the documents because clearly these documents had been taken from the company without their permission so therefore they were effectively stolen documents and so the way around that was for us to focus on public figures and that's why you see so many politicians. I realised that's what we had to focus on because that got us over the public interest argument that we would inevitably face. And we did face once we published. But in order to get that, we were having to, as, as Bastian said, discard smaller stories that would have been potentially a public interest. But, you know, at some point or other, you just got to make a decision as to when you're going to publish and how many you can publish with the resources you have. And the best stories, I think we did. But inevitably, we, we probably missed some stories, I think.
0: A huge part of this investigation was cooperation among journalists. Obermeyer and Ryle spoke about what the experience was like and what they learned along the way.
1: Well, all in all, it was a really great experience, but um, it was hard, of course. If you know one journalist, you probably have somebody with a quite big ego, and we had 400 of them in our collaboration. um, we, had, we had arguments, we had fights inside our groups. For a year we had to find compromises over compromises. And you don't really like to do that. But um, it's, a really, um, it's working very, very well. In former days we had this one story where um, the loose end was in Ecuador. I mean, like four years ago the story have, would have literally stopped from my side in Germany because how would I get documents in Ecuador? No way. But we had a colleague from Ecuador and she got exactly the documents we needed. And we had a great story which led to a raid in, in the house of the UEFA, the European Soccer Association. Um, so it's really it's the, the, the idea of working together is such a great idea that I asked myself why you had to come along
2: to promote it, why nobody else did it before. You know, I think the other thing that we learn here is how little we don't know. I mean, when I started off doing this, I thought I knew a lot. I'd been around journalism for a long time. I'd been an investigative reporter for 25 odd years. I guess I thought I knew things. And then I realized when you work with all these other reporters, how little you actually know. There were so many things I learned. I mean, I remember the great moment when we were all met together in Munich and there were about 109 of us and we were all working on the story. and And then one of the Swiss journalists got up and said, I found a way to search all passports in the, in the documents, and he had worked out a way. There was a code in every single passport, and once you had that code, you were able to find all of the citizens in your own country. I mean, it was like a humbling moment. I was like thinking, oh my god, I didn't know, like, it didn't even occur to me that, you, were, you know. But these guys and these girls, they just, there was a German researcher who was brilliant on the, on the Putin stuff, and I, I have to say, I, all I could do was go, you are a god.
0: Of course, the most stunning part of this story was the massive global impact.
2: Oh, well, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, where do you begin with impact here? I mean, we've had, um, we've had you know, prime minister resign, we've had a government minister resign, we've had the, in Armenia, I think the, the chief lawmaker resign. We, we've had three arrests this week in Britain. We nearly brought down the prime minister of Britain. Um, at the moment, there's public, you know, public demonstrations in the streets in Pakistan and Malta. Um, you know I mean the impact has been enormous and I think that we're going to see the real um, results over the next year or two I mean it takes civil society quite a while from revelation to to action because courts are much slower than journalists and they have to prove civil wrongdoing or or criminal wrongdoing Um, but in terms of impact it's you know it has to be you have to be happy I mean
1: it's (laughs) I would have never dreamt about this I mean if you wake up on the morning, on the when you when when you just broke the story and you see mass demonstrations in several countries, we also had had Iceland, Argentina, and even in London there, yeah. there was a mass demonstration, and and you know this is this is because of something that happened to you and then. Uh, um, um, you see vladimir putin and barack obama reacting to the panama papers and you can still remember how you fought with this guy is panama papers the real the, the, the real name or should we name it like offshore global league or offshore secrets or whatever so and now everybody is just saying panama papers panama papers panama. and you're like yeah wow, wow what happened so um no it's really unbelievable and i still can't really trust my eyes when I see what happened and, and I think we'll have to wait for maybe a year to, to look back and, and say what has changed in the offshore world because this is what it's all about and if there has been no fundamental change then I would be very surprised but we still would have to report that because we're not activists, we, it's, not, you know, it's not our cause that we would be fighting here for, but we are, we are reporting on, on this stuff. And sure, I don't like the offshore world because I think it's not for the good of humanity that people are able to hide their tracks there and stash their money, but um, um, we only can report what we see and, and, and the facts, and we are not the lawmakers.
0: Thank you, Bastian Obermeier and Gerard Ryle, for spending some time with us discussing your award-winning business investigation. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of the How to Cover Money podcast. If you'd like to read the Panama Papers investigation, make sure to visit businessjournalism.org. We'll include links to the award-winning stories in the show notes for this episode. If you're in need of more business journalism training, the Reynolds Center can help. Visit businessjournalism.org to find articles and self-guided training, download our free ebook, Guide to Business Beat Basics, or sign up for our monthly newsletter. The newsletter will keep you up to date on training opportunities from the Reynolds Center year-round. If you enjoy the How to Cover Money podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review to help make the podcast more visible to other business journalists. Support for the How to Cover Money podcast comes from the Donald W. Reynolds National Center for Business Journalism. Join us on the next episode of our podcast, where we speak with Christopher Weaver of The Wall Street Journal about his work on the 2016 Bartlett and Steele Silver Award-winning investigation testing Theranos.